I want to welcome you into the Sunday Preaching Podcast of the Point Church, located in beautiful Perdido Key, Florida. I'm Tim Coleman, the senior pastor, and we believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live to our service, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of 2 Peter. The book of 2 Peter, we're going to be in chapter 1. Uh, as you are turning there, I want to just share a little bit of my heart uh, as a next generation's pastor and just some observations that I see. I don't think any of these are new. I just think that they're urgent. Um, so I want to talk to you for just a second about a generational drift uh, that we see in the church and in families. Uh, the scripture is very clear that we should raise up our children in the ways of the Lord. Um, but unfortunately, uh, there are more and more families who like to um, kind of pawn off the spiritual life of their children onto other people, whether that be the church or a mentor or a leader. And what happens whenever we do that is the kids start to see the parents viewing spiritual things as of less importance. And then when those children have their own kids, it is even less important. And then the next generation has no concept of who God is or why we should be pursuing him. And there's a lot of different ways that we can see that happening in our culture today. And there's a lot of things that we can point at. And I don't think that the church is to blame. <laughs> I think that it's a, it's a personal decision that we all have to raise up our kids in the right way and to invest in them. Um, it is easy for us to blame other people for our own deficiencies, is it not? It's very easy for us to look for somebody else to blame. And I believe that if we take seriously the passage of Scripture that we're looking at today, that all of those discipleship issues in our home will take care of themselves if we are ourselves growing and nurturing our relationship with God. But I'm afraid that too many parents are so distracted and so worried about the things that are happening in the world that we have lost sight of who God is. Let me say that again. I think there are a lot of Christians, there are a lot of people who profess to be followers of Jesus, who declare the sovereignty of God and declare that God is in control, that get so distracted by things that are going on that our kids know where we stand politically, but our kids don't know where we stand spiritually. We need to, we need to just marinate on that thought for a minute. We have a, we have a way of communicating to our kids about things that we're emotional about, Remember that book, Undefendable, that I talked about earlier? When we're offended, we get emotional. And there may be some things in the culture today that are offending you today. And hey, they should be because the, thing, the scripture says that they're going against the word of God. But the bottom line is we have to teach our kids about the goodness of God. And we have to live in a way where we know that he is in control. Because whenever we live a life that is miserable and disconnected from the promises of God... We become Christians who are cynical about our creator. Whenever we grow cynical about the creation of God and we view the world as irredeemable, we're saying that God is not in control and we're saying that this book is not true. And I don't think there's a single person today who's a born-again believer who would not say that this is the inspired, infallible word of God because it is. 
And guess what? He wins in the end. I don't know if you need to be reminded of that today or if you need somebody to hit you over the head with the book of Revelation. Jesus is victorious in the end. The enemy is not. So I want to challenge you today, parents. Be mindful of the way that you talk in front of your kids because they listen. I know because I listen to them talk about the things that you say. (laughs) And let's be reminded that God is in control. Let's stop giving the enemy so much credit here and start to think that he's won because he's not. I refuse to believe that the enemy is won because Jesus conquered him on the cross. It's finished. It's been done. Okay? So now that we've had a good kick in the knee, let's get into the scripture, okay? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to talk to you today about firm faith. Firm faith. Not faith that looks at every wind of whatever the 24-hour news cycle is, but a firm faith that stands against all things. You know, there are times where uh, there are people who have been Christians for a long time who have become ineffective. Peter made a case for that. We're going to look at here in just a second. But over time, we can become cynical in our hearts to where we stop practicing our faith and we are ineffective for the kingdom of God. Did you know that that is exactly where the enemy wants you to be? That's exactly where the enemy wants you to be. He wants us to be self-righteous. He wants us to tell everybody else how they're doing it wrong and not understand the words of Jesus. And I want to give you an example of that, and I want to be careful. Is the live stream working? If it's not, I'm okay. Okay, it is. I've got to be careful. Okay. I apologize about that. I'm telling you a story. This is a real person. This was not that long ago, but it was not at this church, okay? There was a deacon that I was having a conversation with at a place that I served at. He and I never saw eye to eye on some things. And I was making an effort to have a conversation with him. I was trying to understand him a little bit more. Um, We had a disagreement, and I thought that I was wrong, and I was trying to go make that right. Okay, that's a good thing to do. And we were sitting up in the sound booth one day, and he was just complaining about everything going on in the church. 
every effective thing for the kingdom that we were doing. He just had a burr in his saddle about it. He didn't want to hear about it. And finally, I asked him, what, what do you think is the purpose of the church? What do you think is the purpose of the Christian life? And sitting up in, in that balcony, he looked down and he pointed to a certain row of seats and he said, we need to be doing whatever those ladies down there tell us we need to be doing. And I said, okay, I'm going to need you to break that down for me. I'm going to need you to explain that to me because I don't see that in the scripture. And he said, son, let me tell you something. Those ladies have been in this church longer than you've been alive. They've been walking with Jesus longer than you have. I'm like, okay, I hear you. I agree with you. They're blessings to the kingdom of God. They've been walking with Jesus for a long time. So what's the purpose of what we need to be doing? And at this point, the ladies he was talking about was, were causing some division in the church about some things. And he said, we need to do whatever it is that makes them happy. And I said, does that come with a chapter and a verse? Can you show me in the scripture something to back you up? And he got mad at me, which I was, I was being a little bit argumentative, but I was trying to prove a point to him. That if all of life is about making somebody happy, we're missing something. If all of life is about, do, and I, look, hear, hear my heart, hear my heart. I'm about to spend some time talking about senior saints who've been walking in the faith and how we need you in the church and we need you to invest in us and how you're an example of godliness. I am not disparaging that at all. But I'm saying we do not need to be living life and changing the mission of God to make somebody happy. We need to be living in a way that is obedient to the call that God has on our life. Now, here's the thing. That deacon did not back down and was eventually asked to step down as a deacon because he was causing division. Let me tell you another story about a deacon. Same place. In a Sunday night service, one of my friends was, was preaching and he was preaching about the deity of Jesus, that Jesus was God in the flesh. He was 100% God, 100% man, that he was with God in the beginning. And he just was, it was, it was, it was a, a great sermon, informational sermon about who Jesus was. And one of the deacons walked up to him, had been a deacon in the church for about 40 years. And he said, I didn't know that Jesus was God. That changes some things for me. I need to go home and think about this. How amazing is that, that somebody who has been a Christian, who believed that Jesus was Savior, Son of God, missed out on a detail, but when he understood that, it drew him deeper and drew him nearer to the Lord, as opposed to repelling him away from something. We all have things to learn. I have things to learn. If you are over 50 years old, you have life experience that I, I don't know about. I need you to help me learn. All of us need you to help us learn. But what I was reminded of in that moment is that it is never too late to start pursuing God and experiencing the promises of God in life. It's never too late to start pursuing God. And the reason that I tell you those two stories is I believe that those show examples of passive Christianity and actively pursuing God. Because I believe that there is a cancer in our churches today of passivity. We have made a decision in one moment, and we think that that is somehow disconnected from everything else. And Peter is about to come in and make a really strong case that that is foolishness, okay? But somehow we have gotten to a point where we believe we can stagnantly drift and become more like Jesus. That is not true. 
we do not drift into forgiving other people and sacrificing things from ourselves and loving our neighbor as ourself. No, we drift into my neighbor hurt my feelings, so I'm going to hurt them worse. That's what we drift to. But when we are actively pursuing God, there's something different happening in our life. We are overcoming our own obstacles in our lives and being made more like Christ in this process of sanctification that I believe Peter is about to lay out. And if we are not being sanctified or being made more like Jesus as we live, then we are not fulfilling the calling that God has on our lives. The first thing that I want you to see in the text, faith becomes firm by knowing and believing. These are two different things, by knowing and believing. The Greek word that Peter is going to use for knowledge are two different words. One is gnosis, as in I open up a textbook and I learn a fact, or I hear a story and I can retell those things to you. Our kids are great with gnosis. They will hear a story and they'll be able to repeat it back to you and tell you exactly what happened in sometimes excruciating detail, right? Okay, But then there's epinosis, or believing, which means that there is some action behind the knowledge that we have, okay? If there are, I'm I'm afraid that there are a lot of people that are stuck between these two words. They know something, but they don't believe it. How do we know if we believe something? It is very, very simple. What do our actions indicate about what we know? What do our actions indicate about what we know? The focus on this passage that Peter is giving us is that God has given us everything that we need for life and for godliness. Peter uses these word pairings as as you go through. Anytime you see a word partnered with another one, I want you to understand that he's taken two words that the culture around him has taken to mean something else, and he's partnering them together in the way that God intended for those words to be. We do not have to look far around our culture today to understand that the world has taken things that God has created and they've redefined them as something else. We have to be very careful whenever we're talking to people that we explain what God actually means whenever we're using even some conversational words that we have in life. That makes sharing our faith extremely challenging. But here, Peter is telling us how to live a godly life. There is not an excuse for a follower of Jesus to not live a godly life. Living a godly life does not mean perfection. I want you to see that, verses 3 through 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There's a word pairing. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he granted to us his precious and great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the, for the corruption that is in the world because of desire. He equates those two things together. This case for godliness is not perfection. The only place that I've ever heard somebody try to explain godliness as perfection is either legalistic or a cult member. That is not what the scripture teaches. We are called to be holy as God is holy, but we are pursuing God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That does not mean that we will never make a mistake. One of the challenges in student ministry is that we'll have students that make a profession of faith. They've been saved. We can look at them and we can see the fruit of salvation in their life. But then 
okay, they've made a mistake, they told a lie, they did something that they weren't supposed to, and they understand that there is a sin that they need to repent of, now somehow in their mind they go to a, back to the point where they say, I was never saved to begin with. And that is not true. That is not true. Brothers and sisters, we will fall short of the glory of God. Our human nature is still a part of us. We have been made into a new creation, but we are still humans. There are times where we will fall short. Paul is using these Roman words, these, these uh, Hellenistic arguments, and he's crafting something perfectly together. One of the most drastic examples, and we'll talk about this a little bit later too, is that the world has taken uh, a large portion of who God is. The scripture says that God is love, and we look around the culture, and the word love is used to mean a whole lot of different things much, much, much less than what God is when we say that God is love. And the same thing is happening in this Roman society that Paul is in. They have taken something that has been watered down to describe a simple emotion, and Peter is trying to explain to them that we have to love one another. Our, the power of God is released to believers through our knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and his goodness. As Nicodemus came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you must be born again. That born again is not just hearing the gospel, but it is believing. Jesus says that if we believe that we will be saved. I want you to think about that concept like this. Everybody has a number you may not know exactly what it is, but if it showed up, you would quit your job and go do something that you really want to do, right? Okay, some of you are smiling, you're nodding, you're filing it away. If you're retired, that may be a number where you know my whole family's going to be taken care of. I can go live on a cruise ship, okay? Whatever that number is to you. So let's say that somebody wrote you a check for whatever that number is. They signed it. They're good for it. You, can, you, you know that there's value behind this check. And somebody hands it to you and you take it home. And you go and you put it in your drawer in your bedside table and you leave that check there. You know it's there. You know it's there. You can go get it if you want to. But that thing's not doing you any good. Because it's sitting in the table next to your bed. You have to take the check to the bank for there to be value to it. Now look, am I saying that God's not sovereign in all things? No, he is, but there is a responsibility that we have that Peter is making an argument for that we need to grow in our faith and we need to take ownership of what God has called us to. We cannot be passive in our knowledge or our gnosis because gnosis leads to epinosis of experiencing God and his goodness. When we taste and see that the Lord is good, we are changed forever. When we truly drink of the fountain of living water, we are changed forever. Think about Jesus as the good shepherd. He calls out and his sheep respond because they know him. They have experienced the goodness of the shepherd. They know that he's going to protect them. They know that he's going to lead them to water. They know that he is going to lead them to safety. They know that he cares for them. In other words, Jesus did the saying, we, the saving, we heard he saved. But we were called into knowledge or epinosis of him. And our salvation is not the only glorious part in knowing God, though it is more than we deserve. I want you to understand something. God is calling us into a better way to live now, not just something that we're looking forward to to heaven. Yes, we are temporary travelers on the world, 
with an eternal home, but God has a purpose for you here and now. So some of you are probably thinking that like something's bothering me, and it is. Because we have so many people who claim Jesus that are miserable in life because we've forgotten the promises of God. I read this in a commentary. I didn't look this up, so somebody can fact check me, but there's 7,474 promises of God in the Bible. 7,474 promises of God in the Bible. And when I read that, I started thinking about some of those promises and I couldn't come close to naming 7,000 of them. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest with you. But in there, he says things like, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He says things like, I am the lifter of your head. There's so many promises that God gives to us. And if we believe those promises, we're going to be a people that are filled with hope and joy and love, not marked by the things that we're against. We're going to be a people that are showing the love of God to the people in the world. These verses, of course, are also speaking of an inheritance and a salvation that's pointing towards heaven, but heaven is not the only benefit. Warren Wiersbe said, and I think he was probably quoting somebody else who quoted somebody else. Y'all know how those things go. He says, don't become so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Don't become so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. There are times where we like to say, okay, I've made a decision. I'm doing the right things. I'm in my lane. I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. And we just totally negate and totally don't pay attention to anything that Jesus has told us to do, like going to the world and making disciples of all nations, like loving our neighbor as ourselves. Why? Because we don't drift into those things. They take work. It takes us being a people who are obedient to what God has called us to do. We are able to participate in the divine nature, Peter says, but we're also able to escape the corruption of the world caused by desires. I want to talk about that for just a second. Because when we think about an escape, we think about coming in and kind of like putting a wall between us and the world, but that's not what Peter is talking about at all. He's talking about living in a world and not being influenced by the evil things, but instead speaking life into it and engaging the world. Now, if Second Peter were written today, some people would say, this is this new age thing. This is, this is an, I have a problem with this. This isn't the way that things used to be because he talks about doing all of these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit, when Jesus was walking with his disciples, he said, in a short time, I'm not going to be with you anymore, but I'm going to send you a helper. And what did the disciples do? The same thing that we do. Jesus, what do you mean you're going to leave me alone and nobody's going to be with me and I can't walk beside him and have somebody walk me through every step of every day? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The one who's coming after me is even greater than I. He sends the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living in you so I want to challenge you today, are you listening to the Holy Spirit or are you telling him to, to forget the challenges that he has for you because you want to be comfortable? Do you want to live and understand that you have a helper and encourager who is with you always or are you wanting to be comfortable in your Christian walk? Peter understands that there's corruption in the world. And if you've read the letters of Paul, he definitely agrees, and I do too, but they understood that corruption 
was from the, des- the evil desires of men. See, all of us are born into a sin nature. All of us need to be saved. And if we have been saved by God, then we should understand that everyone needs to experience what we've experienced. Instead of viewing ourselves as better as somebody else who may sin differently than us, we need to see that they are people who also need to taste and see that the Lord is good. These are people who also need to understand that Jesus died on the cross so that they could be made right. But instead, we like to think that we are good enough for Jesus to save. But the cross is so much bigger than that. In rabbinic Judaism, the drive to uh, do the right thing or to be made right with God was driven by the law. And today, uh, our desire to follow God should be driven by the scriptures, and that is true. But unlike the law that was made for impulse control, we use the scripture for growth. And Peter is making a case that we should be growing. He is also condemning the immoral practices that are happening around him. I wish we had time to go through and do a word study on so many different of these word pairings, but we don't have time for that today. You're probably going to want to eat lunch before 2 o'clock. But this escape is a picture of sanctification, of growing more like Christ. And I believe that is a biblical view, that if we are doing the things that God is calling us to do, that we are actively pursuing the Lord, you will struggle you will face temptation. Those temptations do change over time. You will battle anxieties in life. Jesus himself said that you will have trouble, but he has given us everything that we need to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. I want to jump ahead just a little bit for the sake of time, but the second thing that I want you to see in in the scripture is that faith comes by living it out. Faith comes by living it out. This is a very, very simple concept. But again, just like people miss between knowing and believing, I think there's another stage here where people can miss out on what God is calling them to because they may know something, they may believe it, but they can't put it into practice every single day. The things that we do indicate the things that we believe, and if we are in Christ, we have to live out our faith. Verses 5 through 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and with knowledge, self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And you may be going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Peter just said that God has given us everything that we need. Now he says to make every effort. Does that mean that God's not in control? No, it means that he has a calling and we have to be obedient to him because he is God and we are not. So we supplement our faith. And I believe that Peter is laying out building blocks of the Christian life for us in this passage. And he says that we have to supplement our faith with virtue. And virtue just means moral excellence. But here's the problem with moral excellence. Whenever we become excellent morally, we start to look around and notice everybody else who's not being excellent morally. That is a problem. It is a cycle that we have. Instead of looking at other people, which we have the desire to, to look out and to compare ourselves to other people, the scripture is saying that we need to be worried about ourselves and we need to be growing in our own faithfulness to God. 
Then he says to virtue, add knowledge. And this is gnosis. This is informational knowledge. After we have, this is under the assumption that we have experienced Jesus, we have been changed by his grace, by his mercy, and now we are learning more about him and more about the world. Because I know this, I believe that wholeheartedly that God created the world and everything in it. I believe that. And I believe that as we get into even different subjects, that they all point back to our creator. And as we learn about all of those subjects, those are tools that we have to point other people back towards our creator. So we should be growing in knowledge. But there is a challenge. We have to be careful because with knowledge comes pride. We are a sinful people. Our human nature goes straight to this knowledge, and we start to think of ourselves as better just by learning things. And just by knowing something does not make us better than other people. In fact, if we know something and we don't believe it or act on it, that knowledge is useless altogether. But then to knowledge, we add self-control. And the Greek writers take this extremely seriously in their own literature when they talk about self-control. Of course, you know the Greeks, the authors of the Olympians, they would uh, have strict training regimens. And Paul or Peter uses the same language here to say that we, to our knowledge, need to add self-control. This Roman culture that was around Peter would give themselves to every desire that crossed their paths. If we think that the world is bad, I think we can look back to a time in history where the same kind of things were happening, Okay. I want to say this very gently and, and very in a, in a very caring way. Is that as followers of Jesus, we have to be self-controlled. God has given us the scriptures to teach us how to live. God has presented guardrails in our lives. And if we stay in between those guardrails, we're going to understand that the reason that they're there is because God cares for us and cares for our effectiveness for the kingdom while we are in this life. Because there are certain things that the scripture says to avoid and to not get tangled up in that are going to cause us trouble if we go on the other side of those guardrails. That doesn't mean that if we stay in between those guardrails that there's not going to be anything challenging in life, but it shows us that that is the better way to live. So whenever we make claims about things being sin, it is not out of anger or frustration towards other people. It is out of a brokenness of seeing what that sin is doing to people. So when we call you into repentance, when we speak even into the culture, it's not out of anger or frustration. It's out of a broken heart. So we're calling people into repentance. The second idea that Peter is presenting in the culture is that the Hellenistic area that he is writing in has a culture of obesity. And that doesn't just mean with food, with any desire that comes along their way, with self-indulgent that is basically viewed as a human right. Now here's what I understand about Peter's words when we're applying that spiritually. When you are obese, and you gain weight to a certain point, you are not able to do the things that you were able to do before, okay? When I was in college, 
at one point I got up and I tried to go do something that I could do in high school when I was working out all the time and I realized I was not able to do that. Okay, are y'all tracking with me? A little bit later, got a little bit older, started to try to exercise again. Guess what? That mile time started going up by minutes, not seconds. Are y'all with me? If we are not exercising our faith, even though we've got it, even though it may be in the nightstand next to the bed, even though we have the scripture, even though we may even go to church, if we're not exercising our faith, we're going to come to a time where we need our faith and we need the promises of God in our life, but we've not been acting on them and we're not going to be able to step up to what God has called us to do because we were not prepared. That is a very, very dangerous place to be spiritually. We have to take our faith and our walk with Jesus very, very seriously. And that comes from self-control, not just from avoiding things, but self-control to do the things that God has called us to do. When I was in seminary, uh, one of our textbooks was uh, a book called The Celebration of Discipline by a guy named Richard Foster. I read that book about once a year. I'm about due for a, a fresh read of it. But in it, he talks about the disciplines of walking with Jesus. And what I understand about disciplines is that they are not always fun in the moment. You're not always going to want to do those things. I've never met somebody that was just like really looking forward to fasting, okay? That was something that you did whenever something very, very heavy was, was weighing on you and you needed to spend some time with God. But as he explains self-control and how all of those spiritual disciplines work together, self-control is at the very center of all of them. We have to grow in self-control. And then to self-control, we add steadfastness. That indicates endurance. Walking with Jesus for a long time. This is a spiritual battle rather than a physical battle. But the virtue is to stand firm with Jesus through the long haul. So parents and grandparents, if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, I want you to know that the impact that you're making on your families is noticed. I want you to know that we see it. That there's times in life where people like me, your kids, your grandkids, start to feel like they're alone and they're isolated from the world. And they feel like nobody else is following Jesus. You can go ask any of the teenagers who go to, who go to a public high school. If they'll, they'll tell you that they're the only person that they know that's a Christian. I know that that's not true because I know other kids from other youth groups that go to their church, but they feel like that. And guess what? Whenever they feel like that, you know who they look to? They look to you. Their parents, their grandparents, their church family to know that there are faithful saints who are walking that road. The author of Hebrews says that we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses so we can throw off every hindrance of sin so that we can seek after the Lord and I want you to know that when you live life in a steadfast way, that we see it and you're encouraging the body. It does not go unnoticed. It does not go unnoticed. But what about the flip side of that? What happens whenever we don't walk with Jesus in a steadfast way? Well, we see that too. We see that too. And unfortunately, instead of leading people to be closer to Jesus, we're contributing to the problem of spiritual atrophy that's happening in our world and in our churches. We have to take seriously our responsibility to follow Jesus. If we have tasted and seen that he is good, we have to live like it. If we understand the promises of God, we live in them. 
<clears throat> the people around us start to see that there is a better way to live than to steadfastness. He adds godliness, and I think these go hand in hand because over time when we see people who have walked in a steadfast way, and I could sit up here and I could name you person after person after person after person in my life and in churches that I've attended who have poured into me, who are not related to me. <laughs> I won't try to not get into too much detail because I don't want to cry up here because of how much it means to me, but how many dozens of little old ladies that have walked up to me and prayed some of the most powerful prayers I've ever heard in my life where there were things that I needed to hear, <laughs> things that I needed spoken over me, things that I needed affirmation into my calling to be a minister of the gospel, those things are important. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, look, I want to take on something. Don't just give me one of those, one of those old-person tasks in the church. I'm still useful for the kingdom. Don't just ask me to pray for somebody. And I said, you have no idea the power of your prayers. <laughs> Because I know that you've prayed to sustain me and it's worked. Let's not underestimate the power of steadfastness and godliness in our life. Godliness simply means living a life that God approves of. Living a life that God approves of. How do we know? You know when you see it. You know. There's no mistake. If you're a follower of Jesus and you see somebody else who's living a godly life, the Holy Spirit in you shows you who those people are you know if they've been walking with God. It just shows. Whether it's by their, their attitude or by the way that they love people around them, we know. And in the Greek world, this virtue was very important because it pointed towards living a life that was approved by ancestors or by the pantheon of gods. And I think that for us today, we need to understand that living a godly life is so much more important than uh, making a grandmother or a grandfather who may not be with us anymore happy, but by pleasing the Lord and our Creator. By pleasing our Creator. Again, I say that in the most respectful way possibly, in the most, most respectful way possible, but for some of us, we have parents and grandparents that may not fear the Lord, that may not. You may not have that blessing in your life, and you may be ruled from somebody who is in a graveyard somewhere when God is trying to set you free, and I want to tell you today that it's okay to be set free, to live a godly life, but then to that godliness, we add brotherly kindness. You know this word, Philadelphia. It's described as familial affection. Now, for the Greeks that Peter is writing to, they took that very seriously. You take care of your own is basically what that means. But for the marker for the Christians was that they treated each other like family. And that was weird to them. That was a weird thing for them to see and to understand because the Christians would go and care for one another in a way that cost them something. That was how you knew who was a Christian in town because they were going and they were serving people. You didn't know who the Christians were in town by how many arguments they got into or how many times they wanted to be right. You knew by how they loved one another and how they served one another. You know, in John 13, 35, it doesn't say that all the world will know by the way that you're right or by the way that you prove your point or by the times that you stand up to fight for something. No, it says by the way that we love one another. Jesus says, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, by the way that you love one another. 
It is a marker of Christianity. It's so fitting to see brothers and sisters in Christ who are not related to each other understand that they were born into the world as dead people who were then brought into life through Jesus Christ and understanding that that bond of being made new, being brought into new life, draws them together even closer than family relationships. What a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. What a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God that we should love one another and care for one another because we have been brought into his marvelous light. And the last one, of course, is love. And I do want to take a second to explain what love is because I think that we need to hear it. Um, Because this is a concept that I keep saying is being redefined, but it's been redefined as something that is limited as something that is conditional, something that says, oh, if I do my part, you better do yours. That's what the culture says that love is, but what I understand whenever I look into the scriptures is that God loves me even when I don't do what he wants me to do. God loves us with a well that never runs dry. God's love cannot be used up. It is something that is overflowing And it's important for us to understand that God is the author of love. It is not whatever we flippantly call things, okay? With students, we talk about how you say, oh, I love chocolate chip cookies. That's a different kind of love, right? Even in our marriages, when we say, I love you, that is not talking about an emotion. That's talking about a virtue that I believe is reflectant of how God feels towards us. Um, Over the past few months, I've had the opportunity to do some premarital counseling with a few couples, and one of the things that we talk about in that is about the vows that happen at the wedding, right? Now, I want you to picture this, because typically, as young couples are approaching a wedding, they're worried about the details of the day and the decorations and what the reception's going to be like and the cake, and looking back here, Lisa Newton's back here nodding because her daughter's getting married soon. She knows, she knows what I'm talking about. It's not about the celebration, It's about the vows. It's about the vows that are made. Without the vows at the ceremony, you're having a party. And I believe that God created marriage as a picture of his love for the world. So when we say for better or for worse, it does not mean when I feel like it. When we say for richer or poorer, it does not mean until I decide otherwise. When we say in sickness or in health, it doesn't mean until I have been inconvenienced enough. Forsaking all others does not mean until I find somebody else. And to love and cherish does not mean just on the good days. We should take our marriage vows very seriously, but even greater than that is we should take our vows to God seriously to be a follower of his. In 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about what love does and how it acts, not how it feels. 1 Corinthians 13 does not talk about an emotion, but it is a divine virtue that God has passed to human beings. The Father loves the world so much that he sent his Son, and we can look to God to see that we have to live that out to be effective. Verse number 8. For if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
many Christians wish that at times of challenge that they would just get an IV or a shot of faith in that moment. We wish that when the challenging times come that God's just going to give us what we need. And sometimes he does. Sometimes he does. But sometimes he's offered it to us over and over and over and over again. And we've neglected to pick it up and read it and understand what it means. Because we're so estranged from listening to the Holy Spirit guide us, we can't understand his voice in the moment of need. That picture of spiritual obesity, of needing to do the things that we need to do because God has called us to do it and we don't even know how because we're not capable anymore. It's a picture of being ineffective. But Peter says, no, if you do these things, if you grow in virtue, if you grow in knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness, you will be effective in the kingdom of God. You will be fruitful. You know what Jesus says for a tree that bears no fruit? That it needs to be cut down. That it needs to be cut down. And sometimes there are moments in life where God prunes us and it hurts but we understand that he's doing it so that we will be effective moving forward. Sometimes God is teaching us lessons as he is pruning us so that we can sow eternal fruit in life. Peter's saying that growth and these virtues make us grow in our knowledge, our experience of who God is. In other words, our actions and our growth shows our spiritual condition. Um, our staff every once in a while will go through uh, a leadership book, and one of those books is by a guy named Patrick Lencioni, and he's like a guy who's going to help you, but he's going to kick you in the kneecap while you're going so you remember that you hurt, okay? And one of the just hard truths that he says is that you are perfectly set up for the results that you're getting today. You're perfectly set up for the results that you're getting today. And at times, we don't like to hear that because we're understanding that we're reaping the fruit of what we've been sowing into, but we're expecting God to just download whatever we need into us in that moment. And that's not how walking with God works. The last thing I want you to see in the text is that faith becomes firm by remembering the power and the promises of God. Faith becomes firm by remembering the power and the promises of God. Peter is going to go on to talk about the gospel. The gospel is not just for new believers, and it's not just for sinners. The gospel is for all of us for our whole lives. A picture of that is what we did just a few minutes ago when we observed communion, when we focused on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as a reminder of what he has done for us. But if you are in Christ, you have a moment of salvation. For me, I was 12 years old. I was about 10 miles down the road here on the beachfront in Gulf Shores. And a group of high school students shared the gospel with me. And looking back at that, that was probably the worst gospel presentation I've ever heard in my life. But God used it to save me. And I'll be forever grateful for that. When I was in college, I even told one of them that. He went, you got saved from that? I was going, hey, that just shows that the power of God can redeem any, any of our weak offerings that we bring to him. But in that moment, they explained a concept that I never understood. I knew some information. I grew up in church. I could tell you the Bible, but I didn't know that it was some things that I did that sent Jesus to the cross. I had to hear that my sins Jesus died for. I had to understand that it was a personal thing to me. And because Jesus gave his life for me, 
the Holy Spirit was tugging on me to say, I'm going to give my life to serve you. And everything's been different since then. It was an experience, experiencing who God is. And at times when we forget what God has saved us from, it can render us ineffective for the kingdom of God. So we have to remember the power and the promises of God. He says this in verse 9, Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten what he was cleansed from in his former sins. He's saying if we are not living in this way, if we are not living as we are becoming more like Christ, if we are not living in virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love, if we are not living in this way, we are blind to what Jesus has done for us. And if we are spiritually blind, we're going to be ineffective for the kingdom. I don't know if you've ever tried to, to do something in the pitch dark, but you about can't figure out where anything is. You're going to stumble over everything that's in your house. You're going to fumble around. But until you have a light and you're able to see, you are not going to be effective in what is going on. So the picture here is of remembering not an ongoing salvation that happens, though we do become more like Christ, but it is remembering what he has done for us at that moment of salvation. Last week we had a baptism that happened, a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We have to remember what he has done on our behalf. And if we neglect growing in Christ and instead turn back to our former sins... We're telling God that we don't care about what he's done on our behalf. And that should grieve in your soul if you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Verse number 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, when you read this, I don't want you to get hung up on a phrase in here about calling and election. But basically, I believe this is pointing to a Baptist distinctive of once saved, always saved. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are going to develop into a mature follower of Jesus Christ. You're going to have a desire in your heart to do the things of God, to grow in the things of God. Now, there may be some times where God has to use another one of his followers to drag you along the way. For me, at one point, uh, I'm a dear brother named Scott came to me and said, hey, you need to be growing a little bit more than you are. And he drug me along the way. And that was a beautiful picture of discipleship in my life. But as we live, the things that we do indicate where our heart is. The things that we do show if we are seeking after the Lord or not. He says, if you practice these qualities, which means these are not things that just happen once or twice. These are ongoing qualities in life then you will never fall. That, may, that does not mean that you'll never make a mistake or that you'll never slip up or that you'll never fall into sin. It means that you're going to make it to the finish line. It means that you are going to see the eternal inheritance of heaven. It's a term for zeal, effort, expending energy. Revelation seventeen fourteen says, With him will be his called, his chosen, and his faithful followers. So that's a challenge for us today, to be faithful followers of Jesus. 
In verse 11 it says, For in this way you will be richly provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now this doesn't mean that you're going to have a bigger mansion than somebody else. But it means you'll be richly provided for for all of eternity. And that's a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for all who believe. For all who believe. I want to leave you with a quote from Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher. This is a prayer that he has. He says, Our God, we are aware that life upon this planet comes to an end for each of us. No one knows the exact hour or day. Moment by moment, we come closer to the last breath. May we make each day count as though it were our last. If we have wasted days and weeks, forgive us. Let us have a tremendous sense of urgency to live today with Christian richness so that we can make up for squandered time. We remember him who in 30 precious years lived as though he was abiding eternally in time. And he says, in his name we pray. So let me challenge you, follower of Jesus. If you're not in Christ, just be patient. I'll talk to you in just a second. But follower of Jesus, let's not drift through life. Let's not waste the time that we have because the hour is urgent. Your families, your faith community, it needs you. There's a lost and dying world outside of our doors in Perdido Key that we need to reach. Let's get to work. It's never too late to be reminded of the promises and the power of God. It's never too late to start encouraging. It's never too late to start sharing the gospel. It's never too late to put into practice these building blocks of the faith. To the young people in the room, this is a roadmap to be effective in the kingdom of God. If you're ever in doubt, open up this passage and read about how you should be growing and understand that though God does the saving, we have a responsibility to seek after him all the days of our lives. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. The worship team's going to come up and they're going to sing a song. But faith becomes firm by knowing and believing. Faith becomes firm by living it out. And faith becomes firm by remembering the power and the promises of God. So one more question before we pray. Are you growing up in Christ or are you growing old? Are you growing up in Christ or are you growing old? Let's pray.